Welcome to the Lubber's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. And the two of us are rereading the Aubrey Matchery novels of the author Patrick O'Brien. We're just about at the end of The Far Side of the World. So, Mike, tell us where we got up to last week. Tell us where this story might be taking us this week. Yeah, thank you, Ian. So last week we were in Chapter 9, and Stephen suffered a serious injury. You know, Jack brought a small crew onto an uncharted island so that Martin could operate on Stephen, but there they found the wreck of the Norfolk and about 90 of her crew members there. The Norfolks told him the war is over. Jack told the Norfolks that they are his prisoners. And Stephen recovered without surgery, but the surprise disappeared in a storm overnight. Now, this time we're on chapter 10, the final chapter. Everyone is searching for the surprise, waiting for the surprise's return, hoping the surprise will return. Martin and Stephen get to explore a bit of the island. Jack tries to figure out how to protect his men and tensions heat up between these two sides, the Norfolks and the surprises. What's on the horizon? What does it portend? What's the ultimate role for all these sharks? Is there a return to the biter bit? <laughs> well, I, I, I want to get into the sharks, but we'll come to that in a second. Um, the chapter starts out with Jack and Stephen in the cabin. Jack, what? this is the cabin, the little hut that they've built on shore right. here. Remember, Jack and Stephen and some of the rest of the crew are ashore. And the surprise is who knows where in this storm. Jack's watching the horizon, and they're talking about which of their cruisers have had the most bad weather. In fact, Jack says which of the cruisers have had the most quantity of weather. Jack thinks it's this one. They compare it to the journeys in the Leopard. Jack talks about a time in his youth when his wet pigtail snapped off in freezing wind, and they get totally off on one on, on the amount of weather. Now, Mike, after all the mentions that we've had of sharks in this book, I think that O'Brien could have saved us a lot of bother. Jack could have made his commentary about weather just by substituting the word sharks. Try this out. Jack says, by and large, taking one thing with another, I have never known any commission with so many sharks in it. For sheer sharks, for sheer quantity, and I may say also mass of sharks, this commission bears the bell away. So there you go. Little substitution trick there. That works. And I saw how you did that thing with the bell and the sharks. Yeah, uh, there's uh-huh. a harking back. <laughs> uh-huh. And of course, it's one of the great questions that we're going to resolve in this final chapter. What's going to happen to the sharks? Are they going to be victorious? Are they going to be happy? Are they going to be fulfilled? Or is there a different fate in store for sharks? We will see. There we go. So, Meanwhile, Jack confides to Stephen his concerns about Captain Palmer. We heard about how he can't read Palmer's facial expression with all the hair and the bandages. He really wants to believe Palmer and Butcher. He wants to believe that as officers, they wouldn't actually tell an outright lie about the war being over, because that's how it would work in Jack's very particular officerly code of honour. But he has his doubts. Jack says, it did not occur to me that an officer would tell a direct lie. Stephen, who's feeling much better now, by the way, says, oh, come, Jack, for all love, you're an officer, and I have known you lie times without number, like Ulysses. I have seen you hang out flags stating that you are a Dutchman, a French merchant, a Spanish man of war, that you are a friend, an ally, anything to deceive. Why, 
the earthly paradise would soon be with us if government, monarchical or republican, had but to give a man a commission to preserve him from lying, from pride, envy, sloth, gule, avarice, ire, and incontinence. So, <laughs> Stephen's back on form. He's back on such great form there that he deliberately slightly misquotes the seven deadly sins. Nice right, one. right. Incontinence. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Jack is telling Stephen, he's saying, you know, he really wanted to carry him to the Marquesas and, and set them free as officers on parole, just in case, you know, perhaps the treaty, there'd been a treaty, but it wasn't ratified. But he'd had this feeling that something was wrong ever since he came ashore. They weren't welcomed as rescuers, which surely they would have been if the war was over. Palmer had been way too serious when Jack told him about being his prisoner and joked about not being too harsh with him and his men. If it was really peace, he expected Palmer to kind of joke back to him. Now, Stephen suggests that American officers might react differently than English officers. But Jack's also concerned that apparently a number of Palmer's men were deserters from the Hermione. And and they're, you know, they're here on the island. And Jack tells Stephen about this Royal Navy ship, which reacted to incompetent authoritarian leadership and mutinied. You know, Jack was saying it was a guy that never should have been a post-captain. And and we're hoping kind of here on Lover's Hole in the future, we've got a historian to discuss something about naval leadership and Jack's unique ways. So, So stick a pin in that. We hope to be coming back to that. And from a very unique geographic perspective. Um, yeah. So, you know, in, this story about these deserters, these mutineers, uh, England was at the time at war with the Spanish. Um, so the mutineers turned the ship over to the Spanish. But when the Spanish switched sides and joined Britain against France, uh, many of them fled to the U.S. And Jack wonders now, maybe Palmer's just trying to protect these deserters and his crew, because if they were taken as prisoners of war, they'd have to be put on the ship's books and they'd all be found out and they would absolutely be kept and hung regardless of what happens. But if this is peacetime and they're just kind of rescuing them off an island, they wouldn't be registered. And maybe Palmer is thinking, you know, he could that would be the way that he could kind of get these guys taken without being hung. And Stephen remembers that that letter they had read from Gill, Palmer's cousin, had said that they were thinking about colonizing this island, this native island, and with these men who wanted to be far from their home country. Maybe that's the deserters. Yeah. So there's a reason for us all to feel even more uneasy. I think we were feeling uneasy last chapter. But Mike, this this is all started to feel like it breaks down. People are suspecting each other's motives. Right. People are kind of reaching for what might be genuinely going on. Jack is certainly starting to doubt his presumption that maybe Palmer and Butcher are telling more or less the truth. Stephen and Martin, meanwhile, are gathering foodstuffs and going out and gathering sights and sounds and philosophy of the island. Martin returns from gathering coconuts in the rain, and he asks Jack, when the surprise might return. Jack thinks it through and he suggests, kind of optimistically, I think, that they might start looking for them in a week. So Jack leaves to go and see the men. Martin goes and tells Stephen that Butcher, the Norfolk surgeon, is happy to come and check on him. He's concerned 
that the surprise is unlikely to have weathered the chain of reefs. There's this long chain of reefs stretching north away from the island. There are submerged islands to the west, and he thinks that during the storm, it's unlikely that the surprise will have made it round. I think the implication, therefore, is the Americans think the surprise might have sunk, just like the Norfolk did. That's certainly what the Norfolk's officers believe. And Stephen, I think both to allay the concerns of Martin and also to express his natural, really profound trust in Jack, says, no, 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 no. Jack knows about the reefs. He knows when he expects the surprise to return. And I think this kind of sets everybody's minds at rest, at least for the time being. Meanwhile, Martin and Stephen are super distracted by the natural philosophy. Martin reports that he may have seen a flightless rail during his walk. But rather than being flightless, it may only have been wet. <laughs> and, and, and Mike, a, flight, a flightless rail, that's another one of these rare birds, right? Yeah, definitely a rare bird. And, and, and I'm not sure, I didn't do enough research to know whether it was you know, actually known in science at the time here. Um, you know, we could post a picture of that. We know oh, that there, um, you know, there's definitely one on New Zealand and, and in some of that part of the world. So it would make some sense here. I loved it, how it might have been a flightless rail, might have just been soaked and wet and therefore not flying. And, and you know, O'Brien tells us that everything is wet here, that the, you know, the rain had turned this stream that separates the two sides really into a river. And, and every day, Jack and Captain Palmer would kind of look across at each other, sort of bow and acknowledge each other. And uh, things, like you said, kind of the, the tensions are increasing a little bit. All the easy food has been gathered. Um, there was, you know, some food that in this storm had kind of fallen off onto the ground. But now in the wet, hot weather, much of that is rotting. Uh, they're finding the fishing is no good. There's all this debris in the cove there. There's all of this, uh, these sharks that, um, you know, anytime they get anything on the line, the sharks are eating them up. And the only thing the sharks don't go after turn out to be poisonous ones. And so they, they can't eat them. And there's one other fish that they catch, but it makes them sick. They actually go blind. They have black vomit. It's not sounding good at all. Uh, and to add kind of, uh, insult to injury, you know, these seamen who are barefoot on the ship all the time, but on the wood, they don't form much in the way of calluses. And so they're barefoot here on land in this volcanic rock and thorns, coral, urchins. You know, they're getting lots of foot injuries here. And Haynes, the deserter who's kind of offered to be an informer, asked to move to the surprise side of the camp. And, and Bondin is passing this request along to Jack. Jack, who at first starts to react a little bit... Uh, knee-jerk says, well, you know what? Why don't you just tell him that if he decides he wants to hide himself in the woods up behind us, that's that's just fine. Yeah. So maybe, maybe things can get resolved here. Maybe this ex-Hermione guy can just kind of find a peaceful place here. Martin and Butcher seem to be the ones who keep encountering each other in the woods, and maybe that's a good thing. So maybe there's a channel there for peaceful communication. Martin and Butcher exchange conversation from time to time. We learn that the Norfolks had hoped to be saved by a Russian man of war exploring the Pacific or even one of the New England whalers that are fishing in these waters. So just as the British crew have got hopes of seeing the surprise again, the Norfolks have actually got their own hopes of seeing a friendly ship of theirs again. The Americans had also planned to build a boat once the wreck had broken up so they could get hold of bits and pieces of it to sail the 400 miles past the western reefs to Huahiva. 
but they had very few tools and they couldn't yet get to the wood on the wreck because the wreck was all in one piece. And there's a little bit more contact between the crews, not just between Martin and Butcher, but as the rain diminished and the upper part of the stream became easier to cross, the men came into contact more and more. And now, Mike, we start to see things breaking down a little bit. Mm. One of the English whalers, upset about the taking of his ship by the Norfolk, cursed an American and hit him with a stick. The American said nothing and gave the standard reply in these situations, which is to kick him in the private parts. The two sides yelled at each other and chased people back across the stream. And Mike, we've got this angry standoff. Was this just a bit of a scuffle or is this a sign of breaking down in the contact between the two sides? Right, right. Well, I, I think perhaps luckily, you know, the surprises are all just a bit distracted as they were having this, you know, increased tension, but they're all waiting for Sunday, you know, the first day that Jack said the ship might return. And, and they're all thinking weather's yeah. been really favorable. So it's Sunday. Jack is going to, you know, have church rigged there. Uh, he's invited the Americans, but only Butcher, the surgeon, comes and he brings Palmer's reply that, you know, his men are not Anglicans and, and they really don't have the clothes for a public ceremony. So Martin reuses one of Dean Dunn's sermons, you know, a sermon that he's preached often, the surprises of power. And, and I love the way O'Brien writes this. He says, you know, Martin's quoting directly where he could rely on his memory and paraphrasing where he could not. All those present, apart from the score or so of Americans who sat here and there on the farther bank, had heard the matter before, a very real advantage for so intensely conservative a congregation. They, uh-huh. <laughs> they approved of it, they admired it, and they listened with something of that same earnestness with which their eyes searched the horizon, straining for the slightest fleck of topsails against the pure blue sky. So we're, oh, we're listening to this good old sermon, but we're really looking for the surprise, right? So, Mike, I'm just wondering, Kate, can you think of any other kind of work of the written art that people like to hear over and over again as a, as a as a comforting relic of their innate conservatism and they kind of talk about it and noodle over it forever and ever and just hear the same thing repeated over and over again? I, oh, I can't I, think of a work I, of literature that works I, like that for I you. I cannot yeah. with all my heart, right? <laughs> what, what might we talk about over and over again? Right. That's great. Yeah, this isn't a Dean Dunn oh. sermon, but we sure do love these books. Oh, yes, we do. So despite knowing all of the uncertainties of the, the sailing and the uncertainties of the possibility of when or when not the we might see the surprise again, the members of the surprises crew were cast down when the ship did not appear. I think they'd all set quite a strong store by Jack saying, well, at the earliest, it'll be here Sunday. But they took that as well. It will be here Sunday. And they're a bit disappointed when it's not there. When she had still not been seen by Friday, Jack noticed that Captain Palmer's bows were now just a casual nod. Jack starts to reckon the numbers in his head. He knew that the Norfolks knew that they, the Norfolks, outnumber the surprises by four to one. And Palmer might not be able to contain his men's increasing confidence and hostility. And might that even supposes that Palmer wants right, to contain right. his men's confidence and hostility. Um, Jack blamed himself. He blamed himself for not staying on the ship, for not bringing a file of Marines, not bringing a carronade in the launch, not realizing that he wouldn't be able to get back out right after Stephen's operation. And he takes inventory of the weapons that they have. And it's not a great picture. He says we have his sword, Blakeney's Dirk, Dirk being a small ceremonial knife carried by a midshipman, 
his pocket pistol and the boat hook. The seamen all had their knives, the knives they carried on their belts, but then so did most of the Norfolks. So the knives are kind of a wash. Yeah. So Stephen, you know, sees Jack. Jack's thinking about all this stuff. Stephen sees the look on his face. And he asks Jack if he's grieving for the surprise or despairing for their friends. And and Jack says, no, no, no. He's sure that the surprise made it, even if Moed didn't know about the reef. And what he's really afraid of is what he calls the wretched fished mizzen. Um, and Stephen says, well, you know, is, he, is the mizzen, is that important? And Jack's telling him that to get back to the island, you know, if he lost his mizzen, he'd have to go to Wakiva fashion a new one and he'd have to do that without the carpenters his mates who were there on the island with him and then he'd have to beat up against the trade winds daily to get back to this island for at least a month and o'brien says Stephen goes oh oh with a very significant look yeah and jack explains that the situation is not likely to remain steady for a month mm-hmm. uh, but as he's talking to Stephen, he hears voices behind their little cabin and he stops. He knows that, you know, eavesdropping is a, is a very standard custom on the ship. And he does not want everybody talking about this, that, you know, Jack's realization here. Right. right. And he knows that, you know, now, as you say, that the weather's changed. Folks from both sides are meeting each other. And sometimes there's neutrals. Uh, for example, you know, one of their poles and a, and a fin from the other ship had talked about how some of the people on Palmer's side felt that Palmer and his officers were no longer in charge since they'd lost the ship and that, you know, the crew had been largely kept in check earlier by a, a, a pretty ill-natured bosun and first lieutenant, but both of them had drowned in the wreck. So, Again, a little more ominous, a little bit more jeopardy for the surprises kind of trapped on this island. Wow. Mike, it's it's a pretty grim situation. All this talk of a fished mizzen reminds me I should go and check the frapping turns on my own mizzen mast. So maybe one or two of the listeners want to join us. Just go and check the uh, state of your spars and cordage, and we'll be right back after this short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. I hope that your standing rigging and your mizzen in particular are all in good shape. And Mike, we're halfway through this final chapter now, and we've got this building sense of foreboding and the feeling that there's, there's, there's some kind of conflict, there's some kind of breakdown coming between the crew of the Surprise and the crew of the Norfolk. And it seemed to me like this is all very carefully constructed, and it might even be either accidentally or or on purpose be a miniature or an allegory of how a nation comes to descend into war. Before there were two families, 
you know, these two nations apart from each other, and that was all okay, and they each had their territory, and they each had their assets and their resources and their customs, and that was okay. But they had to come into contact at this point, and they start to argue. So we see the surprises and the Norfolks arguing about, first of all, something abstract, like, is peace declared and are you my prisoner or not? Into the more practical stuff, like arguing over territory, over borders, these border disputes start to arise and sometimes they get resolved, but each time the resolution seems unsatisfactory. People are starting to strike poses, and I have a strong sense that Captain Palmer is relying on pose for a lot of his authority here. They're looking out for intelligence and they're starting to you know, take inventory and build up their defences. There's the risk that just one border infraction, one more of these scuffles on the border could turn really ugly. And this sounds like a metaphor for how countries end up at war. Right. Anyhow, that's what's going on in our heads. Back on the island, Jack and Stephen were hearing voices behind the cabin. And it turns out that it's Butcher and Martin. Yeah. So Butcher is delivering a message from Captain Palmer. And he's asking Jack to please remember their agreement that his crew could walk on the shore in front of Jack's camp in order to get to their wreck. He, he reports that a small group of his men had been turned back this morning. And Jack asks Butcher to assure Palmer that they'll be dealt with. He sends his regards and his assurance that it will not happen again. Yeah. Now, again, we hope that this is a nice kind of resolution and we can draw a line under it. I've got a feeling, though, that the line is going to resist being drawn. Jack offers to help Stephen walk to the top of the mountain and see the sights. And Stephen is hoping to catch sight of this flightless rail, hopefully a dry one this time. And O'Brien gives us a little insight into what was going on with the rail. Even though Stephen and Jack didn't see it this time, we learn that the rail crept silently into a bush at the sound of Captain Aubrey's heavy-footed, gasping approach. High up, they got a much more impressive view. They got a 30-mile view of the ocean, sighting two separate schools of whales and what must have been a stunning top-down view of the island. And Mike, we've been here a little bit before with O'Brien. He loves the top-down view. He loves the very kind of cinematic God's-eye view of what's going on, often as a prelude to some action. So I wonder what's going to happen next. Yeah, you're right. And, and, and sort of looking down from above that God's-eye view, we change perspective. And Mr. Lamb, the carpenter, and his mates, they're working on this little house for themselves when some of the Norfolks come up and ask if he'll loan out his tools. And Lamb says that he never lends tools, number one. And number two, to do so would be comforting the king's enemies, which is a hanging offense. And they all, the Norfolks all argue that the, the war is over. And Lamb says, well, you know, look, he's older and wiser than them. And you, know, you can take it from him. He's never seen seamen act the way that they're acting mm -hmm. if, in fact, it were peacetime. He doesn't believe them. He thinks they're looking for kind of a free ride out of here and they're trying to cheat the surprises out of their head money. Oh, Mike, again, this is a little signal that we're, you know, two societies on the brink of war, people starting to see ill-intentioned motives behind other people's actions. You just feel like it's inexorable, this sliding into conflict here. Right. Jack sees this, and this is almost a trigger, I think, for Jack to start to accelerate his pace of, of preparation and getting everything ready. He tells Stephen that he plans to get the launch and make it longer to get them all off the island and to Huahiva, which sounds okay, but of course... That's kind of the intention of 
the Norfolks as well. So they're going to need to do it quickly. They're going to need to do it before the other side becomes violent because, of course, there are four times as many Americans as, as there are surprises on the island. There's also the Hermione's there who have their own necks to protect. And it's absolutely understandable that the Hermione's might cut up rough if they think that they can save their skins that way. Jack doesn't think then that Captain Palmer can keep control over his crew with all of this going on. The longer the surprise is gone, he thinks, the bolder the Americans are going to be. It's going to have to take a week. So Stephen says, well, what are we going to do if the Norfolks try to take the launch? And Jack thinks, well, okay, maybe that kind of limited conflict I can take care of. He asks for Stephen's help with victualing. Oh, Mike, this is the payoff that I was looking for. He asks for Stephen's advice about food, and we're going to learn an important message for the chapter here. Stephen says, well, there are some small yams and they're not looking in great shape. And maybe there are some bigger, fatter ones growing in the island, but all the yams we've found so far are pretty thin and measly looking. Shark, he says. Shark is best. Now, Jack has some philosophical objections here. You might not say philosophical. You might say superstitious. He's concerned that all the sharks have been eating the dead Norfolk crewmen. And he thinks, oh, yeah, we're eating the animal that's eaten our fellow humans. That's terrible. And Stephen says, no, 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 no. Let us not be missish, my dear. All earthly plants, to some degree, partake of the countless dead since Adam's time, and all of the fishes of the sea share at first or second or hundredth hand in all the drowned men. In any case, he added, seeing Jack's look of distaste, sharks are very like robins, you know. They defend their territory with equal jealousy. I think Stephen's making this up. Uh, they defend their territory with equal jealousy. And if we take ours by the far channel, nobody will be able to reproach us with anthropophagy. I think I've pronounced that right. Anthropophagy, even at one remove. Well, said Jack, not convinced. I'm too fat anyway. Please to show me your yams. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mike, here we go. Karma for the sharks. Sorry, sharks, your destiny is to be lunch. We're going to have to hear precisely how, but this reminds me a bit of Crocodile Dundee. How do you like your goanna? Medium? Well done? You don't really expect me to eat that. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, try some of those yams. What about you? Aren't you having any? Me? Oh, well, you can live on it. But it tastes like shit. <laughs> Brilliant. Well... Stevens follows orders. He shows Jack some sort of dwarf misshapen yams growing under rocks. But he suggests that Jack might find better ones at the very top of the island, growing in the in the big crater on the top. Now, Stevens, still recovering, says, you know, he's going to wait here as Jack goes up to look. But he does ask Jack, you know, if you see any beetles along the way, if you, you, you kindly, gently put them into your handkerchief and, and bring them back to me. You know, he and Martin would appreciate that. Well, Jack leaves, and, and then I love this description here. Stephen sat, and presently, with a beating heart and that very particular lively, fresh happiness that had not changed since his boyhood, he saw the flightless rail walk out onto a bare patch of ground, stretch one useless, though decorative wing, scratch itself, yawn, and eventually pass on, allowing him, that is Stephen, to breathe again. I just I just love the joy that Stephen finds in his passions. And I love how, 
you know, with with Aubrey kind of you know marching up the mountain, yep. the rail stays hidden. Stephen's sitting there, and the rail just comes right out to see him here. And my, it makes me wonder. There's often a human metaphor, isn't there? We we're invited to speculate when we learn of a new animal like this, when we encounter an animal, who is the human opposite number? Who is the flightless rail of our human story here? Who's who's who is useless but decorative? I don't know. Is it is it, is it Yug Yellow? Is it Jack himself? Is it Stephen? Mm. Right. Jack, meanwhile, not paying a great deal of attention at all to flightless rails, is climbing. He's climbed far. He's sampling the yams as he goes up the hill, not having the best of luck. At the top, he finds the crater covered with 10 feet of putrid water. And any hypothetical yams are clearly, if they're there, they're rotting below this really um, cruddy water. And while Stephen, a few paces below the peak, is having this wonderful, miraculous encounter with the rail. Jack's having a different kind of encounter. He sits, he catches his breath, and the text says he gazed at the far western reef, or chain, of sunken islands. The horizon lay far beyond it now, and he had a much clearer view of its length and breadth. A most formidable shoal, indeed, with never a gap or channel that he could make out, and obliging his mind to be as cold, objective, and analytical as it could be, he gauged the surprise's chance of having weathered it in the exact circumstances of that wicked night. Not as much as one in three was the answer. And his eyes filled with tears. Mm. Oh, my. And it's funny. This is like the moment when he calculated the trajectories back on the uh, on the island where he'd been abandoned by the Polynesian women. And he kind of right, he, he right. scrubbed out his drawing in the sand. This seems like it's much deeper and it's hit much harder. He really thinks they're stuck now. And he's really downgrading his hopes of ever seeing the surprise again. But he looks out and on the far horizon, he sees a dark spot. And Mike, I'm reading this for the first time and I'm going, could it be? Could it be? Right. But that would be obvious. Right. That would be such an obvious payoff. No, this is Patrick O'Brien. The dark spot on the horizon is not what Jack is hoping for. In the darkness under his jacket, he makes out an American whaler headed this way. And since they're far to leeward, Jack thinks they're a week away, which is amazing. You're looking at a craft that's 30 miles away. That's a week sailing up into the wind. Mm -hmm. Wow. Anyway, Mike, now we've got a story running. Like many other final chapters of O'Brien's books, we get this turning point when we think, okay, now the action has to come. Not only have we got the conflict brewing between the surprises and the Norfolks and the Hermione's, all this posing and warmongering going on. Now we've got something that's coming in from the outside to set everything in motion. And here it is. It's the whaler. That's what's coming. That's what's going to bring it all to head. Right? Right. 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 This Patrick O'Brien, we never know. Right. And not only is the story running, Jack is running. He's running down to Stephen. He asks his forgiveness, saying he has to get back to the camp immediately. And he asks Stephen to make his own way down. And when Jack gets down, he asks Lamb to lengthen the launch by eight feet and using the wood at hand. And and Lamb says, well, you know, I'd have to tear down the doctor's cabin. That's fine. You know, tear down the cabins. We'll pitch tents. Uh, and then he asks about weapons, and they talk about that. And Lamb suggests that they could make boarding pikes because they have an extra thing of 10-inch spikes. So Jack wants 20 pikes with staves. He wants three shark hooks with as much bridle chain as possible. He wants them to build something to dry and smoke, like 30 stone of shark. 
And he wants a quick check of all the casts to make sure they are watertight. He's compressing on Lamb over and over again. There is not a moment to lose, and all hands are going to have to be working double tides. I Clearly, in Jack's mind, they got to be off the island before the whaler arrives. It, it's great, isn't it? This is the classic thing of Jack snapping into action, and he's dishing out orders left and right, and we've got, you fix this, you reeve that, you gackle the other thing, you forge this, you hammer on that. And it's great, and it, it makes our pulses race a little bit. Uh, by the way, it's karma for the sharks. In your face, sharks, you're going to be lunch. <laughs> and we get, oh, by the way, a phrase that finds its way into the movie as well. Jump to it, you idle lubber, quicks the word and sharps the action. Damn your eyes. Yeah. We love it, Jack. Bad times for the sharks. They land their first shark. They drag it in ashore. It's being snapped at by all the other sharks. They look for approval and they're immediately put to work double quick on other tasks. Now that we've got the shark and we can start smoking and stripping that, we have to go find coconuts. They keep working in watches through the night, cooking shark. Apparently it doesn't smell very good. Um, they're making coconut fiber. They're teasing it into oakum to cork the seams of the lengthened boat. And in the middle of the night, a strong tide comes ashore. And that changes things because that means the wreck of the Norfolk takes a battering. And that means that pieces of the Norfolk begin to float ashore, which brings the crew of the Norfolk back into play. Yeah, it's amazing. So we've got Jacks running around giving all these orders. He's, you know, some of the crewmen have said he's been roaring like a bull. He's using a rope's end like a weapon, something he's only done sparingly and with midshipmen in private before. Yeah. So, you know, you, you brought that phrase back. I love that, that, you know, you've got all these guys who were used to kind of just lazing around on this deserted island. Now it's just like tougher than ever. You know, some of them have talked about it. it's like being on a prison ship. But here, as you say... Now, we've got these these surprises scattered all over the island, and all of a sudden, there are these big groups of Norfolks walking in front of the camp, and you know they're all headed over in the morning, and at 11.30, 25 or 30 of them are coming back, and they're carrying big pieces of the Norfolk. So clearly, they've got building their own boat in mind. And the carpenters that are working there, the surprises carpenters, are pretty much alone. Some of the Norfolks act like they're going to chase Haynes, this informer, but they're kind of laughing a little bit. And then a group comes over and starts talking to the surprises carpenters. And despite the surly answers they get and sometimes the silence, they just keep making conversation until all of a sudden their leader cries, look, and he points into the woods. The surprises turn and the Norfolks, the group of Norfolks, just grab up all the tools and materials they can get and run off. The surprises chase them. You know, one of the carpenter's mates overtakes one of the Norfolks, the one that stole their compass saw, but then realizes that he's kind of run way ahead of the surprises. And now he's surrounded by Norfolks. They throw him down. And another one of the carpenter's mate uh, gets there. He's got a carpenter's maul and he breaks one of the Norfolks arms. Uh, Lamb and the other surprises have now heard this you know, row, have come up. Some of them are carrying axes and they're running as the Norfolks then start to circle and pick up wood. Jack is up the hill a good bit, hears some of this and shouts down with his onboard ship voice. Mm. And all the surprises stop in their tracks. But they're, O'Brien doesn't write this, but we can kind of see them all foaming at the mouth. They can't wait to get at these guys. They've got all their weapons. They're outnumbered, but boy, this is going to go. But Jack, calms them all down. Jack 
talks to the carpenter who he's got to kind of shake a couple times to get his attention back, learns that they really don't need the tools that they took until tomorrow and tells them that he'll handle it. Go back, use what you've got, get to work. And, and Jack saying that he'll take care of this. Yeah. And it's a really critical moment because if he can't take care of this and we can't get the two sides back in kind of equilibrium again, violence is going to hold up or even wreck their project for making the boat and getting away. He thinks, I need three peaceful days to get her almost finished. I can take her out Thursday night in the night before the moon rises, finish the work out of reach of shore and sail on the next tide. And he doesn't know whether he's got three days worth of control of Palmer over his men. He doesn't know whether the Hermione's influence is going to change over the next three days. He doesn't know what the remaining American officers think. He hopes to figure some of that out by going and talking with Palmer that afternoon. Right. Even though Jack is trying to cling to the civilities a little bit here, Bondon's having none of it. Bondon goes up, tooled up. He's armed, fully armed, ready to escort Jack as Jack's personal bodyguard to go for this meeting with Captain Palmer. And when they get there, Jack notices that Captain Palmer looks sick. He's somehow smaller and older. He looks like he's under tension, looks like he's being quarreling. And their meeting is kind of contentious. And Jack says, well, things could have got out of hand. Notice notice he doesn't say they did get out of hand. He said they could have got out of hand. Palmer says, I think you'll find they already did. And Jack goes, well, it could have been a lot worse, but we can fix this all if you give me my tools back. Palmer says, I was about to send for you. And Jack goes, no, 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 no. You don't send for me. By rights, you should be my prisoner. I'm the one who does the sending for. And it almost breaks down into, yeah, yeah, your mom. Yeah, no, your mom. Right. And Palmer says he's got his own little bit of legal quibbling to do. He says, by rights, this previously uncharted, undiscovered island is American territory by right of first discovery. And Jack, therefore, is going to have to move his men to the other side of the Northern Reef so the Norfolks can recover their ship. And Jack handles that and he pushes back. He says, well, I can't recognize your sovereignty until I'm told otherwise. I'll move my men as soon as the boat is finished. So this just about seems to wrap it all up. Palmer returns the tools so that they can finish the boat. And as Jack takes the tools, we hear that Palmer broke out in a strong voice. Finally, Captain Aubrey, since you maintain that a state of war still subsists, you must be prepared to take the logical consequences of your words. I do not understand you, sir, said Jack. But Palmer, obviously unwell, replied only with a choking excuse and hurried out of the tent. Oh, Mike, I I think we're left deliberately vague there about what Captain Palmer might have meant. Right. (sighs) Anyway, so Jack tells Palmer's red-bearded midshipman, says, let me know if uh, Butcher would like to consult Dr. Matron about Palmer's health, because clearly Palmer is not in the best of shape. And Bondon and Jack walk back. In the shadows in the woods, they hear an English voice saying, Scrag the bugger now, which we presume is one of the Hermione's who are part of the Norfolk's crew. A stone flies and hits Jack's shoulder. The Boston midshipman shouts behind them as Jack and Bondon keep walking. So they've been rescued, I think, from another outbreak of hostilities by some order imposed by this American midshipman. Well, Wednesday comes along. Everybody is hard at work all over the launch. Uh, You know, Vittling's ready. The shark is all packed up. Um, you know, they've got the yams, the casts are still leaking a little bit. Well, they've got some of the yams anyways. And, you know, they've got 
their work kind of draped behind a sailcloth. So they're trying to stay out of view of all these Norfolks that keep walking in front of them. And now Jack has purposely told Martin that he plans to launch the boat into the water on Friday, but then sail on Sunday because it's bad luck to sail on a Friday. Martin innocently passes this information on to the surgeon butcher with the Norfolk. Jack had anticipated this. He's actually hoping to delay a final attack. His real plan is to put the boat out in the water Thursday evening. So Stephen and Martin go off to gather the the remaining yams and the crew works on the boat. But instead of gathering yams the whole time, you can imagine what Martin and Stephen are doing. You know, O'Brien writes, they're persecuting the rail, creeping after it through bushes until it made a dash across the open part of the scree, running as fast as a partridge and leaping down a 10-foot drop with a despairing cry. So I've got, got to admit, Martin and, and Stephen, I'm, I'm a little disappointed in this behavior here. Come on. Yeah, yeah, let's give this rail a little bit of a break. But Martin and Stephen, you know, they've kind of been botanizing. They have collected a lot of yams. And they decide to take a break. They lay down on their yams and they're watching the clouds and they're discussing rails and exchanging poetry verses when they hear the sailors making a great deal of noise below. And Stephen looks over the edge. And what what does he see, Ian? He cries, oh my God, and sees the American whaler rounding the southern headland. Now, Mike, if you've been counting the days you will have known that it's going to be a few days yet until we're actually expecting the whaler here. So for some reason, impelled by some desire or need, this whaler has miraculously sailed super fast to get to the island. But we'll come to that in a second. This is the moment then when battle breaks out. And it's really fascinating that we see this from up high. Like so many other pieces of violent action in these books, we see it in this very cinematic perspective from the far distance, Stephen and Martin are so detached that Stephen hasn't even had time to do this traditional thing of, you know, clearing for action and encouraging Jack and offering political advice. This is Stephen and Martin having to watch this all play out, watch the horror unfold, I would say, from high up on the side of the hill. The Norfolks are crowded together on the beach. They're cheering because what they think of as their whaler is just coming around the corner. Some of the Norfolks run out to warn her about the wreck, which is what they had been doing, if you remember, when the surprise first hove into view a couple of weeks before. A small pack of them now spot Haynes, the Hermione informer. They chase him, they catch him, and they disembowel him by the stream. A larger group surrounds the boat, which the surprisers are now trying to push down the hard beach into the water. The Norfolks have got no fear of all these pikes. They trip the men up, they throw things in the way, they push in the other direction. Jack weighs in. He fights them with his sword to no avail. The launch is now stuck in the sand. The attackers, the Norfolks, rejoin their cheering companions as the surprisers regroup inside the boat. And now they've turned the boat into a kind of mini redoubt, a mini fortress. Everyone's armed with a pike. And Stephen's shocked, grieved by this violence. His head moves from side to side and he realizes, Mike, that something isn't right. The cheering has died down and something else is going on. Yeah, O'Brien writes, the whaler had a huge spread of canvas aboard, far too great a press of sail for her possibly to enter the lagoon. She was tearing along with a great bow wave and she sped past the mouth of the farther channel. A cable's length beyond the opening, 
Her mane and foretagallants carried clean away as though brought down by a shot, and she instantly hauled to the wind, striking her colors as she did so. Her pursuer came racing into sight around the southern cape, studding sails aloft and low on either side, a dead silence from the motionless Norfolks below. This pursuer fired a full prodigal broadside to leeward, lowered down a boat, and began to reduce sail, cheering like a ship clean out of her mind with delight. She is the surprise, said Stephen, and he whispered, the joyful surprise, God and Mary be with her. Amen. Wow. Man. (laughs) I'm riding along in the car. I've got the audio tape running and I'm cheering and pounding the ceiling with my yeah. fist. It's just, yes. Oh, it's, this is the joy of the old mind that has a, a really poor memory. It's like, Oh my God, it's the surprise. And it, it's a little sleight of hand, but it's done so well. We're absolutely, I mean, I'm blindsided every time I think, Oh, it's the whaler, it's the whaler, it's the whaler. And then of course we find out the reason why the whaler was coming around such a tearing pace. Right. Oh, really great work. I mean, really, really Good. great work. Awesome. <laughs> awesome, awesome, awesome. And, you know, with, well, with, without being up close, nose to nose, the, the violence is described, but we don't have to be in the thick of it to get the tension and yeah. to get the drama as a surprise comes around the headland. It's great. Absolutely. You know, and, and it's funny. You know, I, I really want this to be one of these Patrick O'Brien stories where the next book opens five minutes later. You know, we turn the page and we're right there. You know, I want to find out, Right. Was it really peace? Was it really war? What happens to the Norfolk's crew? Yeah. You know, what had happened to Moet and the surprise, you know, the, the same way that when Jack and Stephen were rescued, we got to learn from Honey and everybody about what had happened. I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of unanswered questions here too, right? There are. Like, what, what what's going to happen with Stephen and Diana? Because right at the beginning of the book, Stephen was really anxious about her seeing him as having been unfaithful. They were in pretty bad connection with each other. What's happening there? When will Jack see Sophie again? And remember, they've both been reminded in this last chapter or so of how much they miss the ladies at home. Right. The surprise, who was meant to be getting sold out of the service, is she going to get another reprieve? We've got Jack's lawsuits. We've got still a French spy in naval intelligence. Andrew Ray, what's going on with him? What's happening with Sir Joseph Blaine, who was looking like he was on the verge of getting edged out? What's next for Jack and Stephen? Mike, we're 10 books in, and there are 10, 11, depending on how you count them, still to go. We've reached the top of the hill. Maybe it's time to look over the horizon and see what's coming next. What do you say to just a little more Patrick O'Brien. Oh, with all my heart. protect us from a fished mizzen yeah absolutely